Christians are a peculiar people. To the world around us, we often appear as strange or weird, like we really don't fit in. The phrase the Apostle Peter used to describe us was elect exiles. The idea is that even though we are chosen and precious to God, in a world that's corrupted by sin, we will feel like strangers or sojourners. As the song says, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. So Christians are called to live like foreigners and exiles while still pursuing relationships with the people around us who are not like us. And Peter's first letter is written to help saints, young and old, to figure out how to do that, how to live in the world while not becoming like the world, while also seeking to win the world back to God. The following episode is one of nine where we dove into this letter with fellow saints and seekers here in Brooklyn to try and figure out how do we share the gospel with our neighbors around us when the gospel feels like it's mostly unwelcome. Hope you benefit from listening. Peace and love, everybody. So this is the last of our um, classes on 1 Peter, and I have really, really enjoyed um, spending time with you guys in this letter together. I hope that it has been beneficial for you as it has been uh, for me, uh, taking a close look into um, Peter's letter here and thinking about what it means to be exiles in this world, but elect and choice and precious to God. That's been our focus uh, in each of these studies is to talk about um, and to discuss how to live as elect exiles um, in a world that is not so welcoming to, uh, to those who trust in Jesus and those who look to Jesus um, and put their faith in him. So tonight in our last study, uh, we're going to look at the ending of Peter's letter. We're going to start in chapter 5 and verse 1. Um, and uh, what I'd like to do is start in chapter 5 and verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 7. Uh, so Richard, if you don't mind, uh, would you lead us in prayer before we get into the text tonight? Yep. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together for another fellowship and study. <clears throat> we pray, Lord, we will find this edifying for us and enlightening. And we thank you for everything that you give us uh, on a daily basis, Lord. We love you and we just appreciate learning more and more about you and how to live in a more godly manner and through the teachings of your, uh, your apostles, disciples, and your son, Jesus Christ. And uh, we pray that you will bless uh, Brother Caleb today as he uh, teaches and instructs us in the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, First Peter chapter 5, uh, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read down through verse 7. Uh, so verses 1 to 7. Read with me if you would. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the crowd, the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So these are the words of Peter, First uh, Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, if you just joined us. Um, and uh, let's just start with this question. What, when you look at these verses, uh, obviously the first few verses here uh, focus on shepherding. Uh, or the role of elders, shepherds, uh, overseers. This is one of two places in the New Testament where you see those words all used interchangeably. Uh, elder, pastor, or shepherd, um, overseer, uh, all of those, or bishop. Those words are all used interchangeably here in these verses. Um, so what do you learn from these verses, or what jumped out at you just about the role of, uh, of an elder um, or the attitudes that an elder should have, or the attitudes that an elder should not have. What do you see in the first few verses here? Go ahead, Daniel. Um, the uh, elders should be uh, a willing elder, willing to uh, lead the flock, and not out of uh, any sort of um, obligation. Um, and... Um, they have to be humble and um, uh, they have to uh, not be able, not doing it out of uh, gaining anything, whether it be uh, some sort of uh, uh, just being uh, above everyone as far as like a title or money, gaining any sort of riches or anything like that. Yeah, good. Very good. All right, any other observations about elders here in the first few verses of chapter five? What else do you guys see about the role of pastor or elder um, or overseers here? Rich. I'm back, thanks. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yep. So the question is, what, are, what do you learn from these verses about the role of an elder or a pastor or a shepherd? Or what do you learn about uh, the attitudes that they should have or should not have? Go ahead, Nelson. Um, uh, this is Winston. Um, um, one of the things I think is interesting is that their main teaching tool in verse 3 is um, their example. Yeah, why does that stand out to you? Because, I mean, elders do have authority, so they could just tell people, you do this, you do that, you do this. But um, Peter here is saying, well, the most effective way to, um, to instruct someone to do something is by showing them how they need to do it, by living that out. And I think that's a principle that um, is definitely uh, so appropriate to elders, but it also, I think, transcends that even to Christians, because we could also be like, you do this, you do that, don't do this, don't do that. But perhaps one of the most effective ways that we can help instruct people is just by living it out ourselves and demonstrating that through our example. Yes, amen to that. Uh, we'll come back to that too in a, in a moment here. Uh, go ahead, Ramey. 
um, that the elders have to be eager to serve. Yeah. They, uh, they, are not, they are not to be served, as Christ was not to be served. You are to be eager to serve others. Yeah. That's so good. really, in coupling that with what, um, uh, what Winston just mentioned, this is kind of an upside-down view of leadership, uh, you might say. Reminds me of what Jesus said in Mark 10, um, and I'll post these verses in the uh, chat here. Um, the, you remember when uh, Jesus was speaking to the disciples and the passage Ramey just alluded to, I think, um, in Mark 10 and verse 42, and they were arguing, they were all upset because two of Jesus' disciples had asked if they could be on their, on Jesus' right and left, that is second, third in command. And Jesus responds, he says, hey, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the nations lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. But it's not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's Mark chapter 10, uh, 42 through 45. Um, so basically what Peter is saying here is uh, we're following a different model of leadership, a different model of, uh, of, of how to help and how to care for the people of God. It's not through exercising authority, um, but instead through service and through an example, a lifestyle of service. Good. Sister Parker, go ahead. Yeah, that's why we have to see how God instructs us on picking elders, because if they have those characteristics, it won't be a problem for them to humble themselves and to care for the flock and to do all of those things they are assigned to do, because they, first of all, they want to be, they're not just chosen. It has to be someone interested and then they have to have those characteristics. And because of that, they will do what they need to do for the flock. That's right. That's right. And uh, as, as you pointed out, that's why there are specific qualifications given for people who are going to serve in this role. Um, two places where you'll see that is 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Um, and one of the things that he says at the beginning that I think is important to, to remember here is uh, in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1, that whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Um, but I think that implies that, uh, that at least there should be a desire on the part of the person, that these are not people that are appointed um, just by someone else, whoever they want becomes an elder, you know. No, these are people who desire it, but it takes more than a desire too. It takes a, an attitude in the heart that is willing to follow Jesus's style of how to help and how to serve and how to care for other people. Good. Other thoughts, comments on uh, what you see here about um, uh, leaders? And while you're thinking, uh, let me just throw another question in here related to this that I want you to think about. Um, and it has to do with kind of the style of leadership that Jesus is calling to and that Peter's calling uh, elders to here. I, I want you to think about why, why do you think that, and this relates to a couple of comments that have already been mentioned a little bit, but why do you think that these attitudes that are commanded here by Peter and, and ultimately by Jesus, why are they going to provide for better care for the flock than maybe the more common attitudes of leadership that we often see people um, share? 
Uh, hopefully that question makes some sense to you, but essentially uh, what I want you to think about is why does an attitude of service produce better care for the flock than some of the other attitudes that we might see more commonly in the world today uh, of people exercising authority, bossing, um, you know, using or being served with their position. Go ahead, Ruth. Because it's going to be an attitude that people might um, imitate. So if you have leaders who are going to be servant leaders, um, hopefully um, those who sit under would serve other people as well. Okay, much more eager to, uh, to follow people who have a heart for um, service, right? I think that's true. Any other thoughts on that? Why, why, are, why do you think these attitudes commanded by um, Peter here are, are going to be more effective in caring for the flock than, than other, other more worldly styles of leadership? Yeah, go ahead, Winston. Just thinking about what Paul says about doing everything in love, someone could be a super effective administrator. They could be really good at having a great vision of where they, you know. But um, ultimately, if they're not doing that in love, then Paul says that, you know, so um, a leader who's going to be humble, a leader who is going to be patient and take time to lead by example, someone who's not going to be domineering or, you know, trying to, ex you know, to take, extract their own benefit. That, that's a loving way. That's how important love is. Yeah. Good. Daniel. I think it'll, it would also help um, us, the members, uh, on our journey in being uh, good Christians and better Christians in that, um, It'll uh, it'll uh, help us to be like them, like like Winston was saying, humble, and it'll um, I think encourage us, you know, um, uh, um, yeah, just like what Winston was saying, yeah. Good, good. I think that's important to go ahead, Ray. I was I was just thinking that maybe because it has been it's the other methods of worldly leadership have failed and they've been shown and they failed, you know, from the beginning of time. So this is, would be a different way of, that's what I was thinking. It's a different way of doing things. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, we've seen so many attempts to lead uh, and, and, and many of them could, you know, you can force somebody into doing something, right? You can, I mean, some people can do that if they have enough power or enough money or enough, uh, you know, weapons. You can force people into doing something, uh, but you can't force somebody into giving their heart to God. Um, and, of course, if, if anybody had the right to do that, if anybody had the right to force people to follow God, it would have been God himself. It would have been Jesus, the chief shepherd himself. And yet Jesus never forced anybody to follow him. He invited them, and he loved them, and he served them. Uh, so the same is going to be true in the kingdom of God. If we're, uh, if we're trying to coerce people into following the Lord or trying to uh, force people, they may do what we uh, insist that they do. They may follow us with their lips, but they're, they're not going to follow the Lord with their heart. Um, not, not, not if being led by, uh, by um, a domineering or self-willed or self-centered or arrogant shepherd. 
Um, I'll just add this too. Um, you know, it's interesting to me that uh, Peter's focus here is on shepherding. Um, and, and, and I want to argue that, that, that most shepherds, uh, the ones that are going to do the best job at shepherding, they're not thinking primarily about how can I be a great shepherd. They're not thinking primarily about self at all. They're thinking about how can I best look after these sheep that I've been entrusted with? How can I best care for the people that God has entrusted me with? Um, and so think about it this way. The focus of a good shepherd is not only on his uh, own qualities, but on the needs of and the potential dangers for those that they're looking after. Um, don't think about your own profit, Peter says in verse 2. Rather, think about the, uh, the needs of the flock. Um, and I want us to think about this today. I mean, obviously, at this point, we have not appointed any, anyone in the church to the office of elder or pastor. Uh, but though we are not appointed to the office of elder or pastor, we all have people around us. We all have those whom we are entrusted by God to care for. And by the way, that's the idea behind the word of exercising oversight there in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 5 and verse 2. That phrase, exercising oversight, is sometimes translated uh, in the New Testament to, to care for. Uh, and I want you to think about um, the people that you have around you who God has given you opportunity to care for. How, how can we apply what Peter instructs elders to in our own situations? I think that's a really important question for us to think about and reflect on. How do I, even in the maybe lesser roles or smaller roles than that of a pastor of a church or an elder of a church, how do I um, have opportunities to demonstrate this kind of heart? A heart that does not seek, um, uh, that, that, does, that, that serves God willingly and serves others willingly. A heart that's not looking for any, any kind of gain, personal gain, but rather eagerly looking to serve. A heart that's not domineering over other people who I'm blessed to be able to uh, take care of, but rather seeks to simply be an example to. Um, how does this fit in our own situation? Maybe you guys have other comments on that or other thoughts related to uh, the role of elders here. Um, I had one other question I wanted to throw in here too that you might want to talk about. And that is, uh, how does the chief shepherd um, help us with this? He says, the verse four, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So I think it's helpful for us to think about, hey, uh, God has shown us how to shepherd. God shepherded his people, Israel, all throughout the, the whole Torah is the story of God shepherding his people, Israel. And certainly God has given us in Jesus, the good shepherd who has shown us how to live like this. So uh, what else do you guys want to say about elders, the role of elders, how this text can help us even in our situation where we're not serving yet um, or have not appointed elders in the church? Um, other thoughts or comments related to, uh, to, to the first four verses here? Yeah, Denise. Um, one of the things I was looking at in the scripture um, about the responsibility of the elders is uh, the character that they're clothing themselves with 
um, allows for, I guess, the sheep to be in subjection like easily to them. Um, because I, I guess I was thinking if, uh, if the elder was domineering, uh, I wouldn't want to submit to them. You know, it's always going to be a fight. Um, but I guess, you know, it mentions about Jesus, like Jesus being the chief shepherd. Uh, whoever is appointed as a shepherd has to submit themselves to God first and look at the example of how Christ is uh, in directing the sheep and, and imitate that. Um, so I think it's, it's a very noble task. Um, and it's very hard to not be domineering. Um, you know, as far as for me, I'm, I'm a parent and it's hard to not be domineering to my children. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess thinking of like an elder, it'd be very hard not to be domineering with the flock. Um, which is pretty awesome that God instructs elders specifically not to do that. Yeah. And even more, just as awesome as that is the fact that he models it in his own way of leading us to him, right? And serving us and, and bringing us to him. Really good point. Good thoughts, Denise. Um, I don't know. Some of us have probably been around leaders like that, whether it's on the job or whether it's uh, in a family or in the church family where the leadership, uh, those, those who lead are domineering or self-willed. Um, or how about greedy, you know, um, just seeking their own gain. It's hard, to, it's hard to be in subjection to that for sure. Um, and that's why Jesus, uh, Jesus calls us to a better way. Good thoughts. Other thoughts on how this could apply to us even now, um, even though none of us have been appointed to this role? Mike and Candace, and then we'll get Winston there. Um, I think in a lot of relationships, when we meet people, it's easy to kind of figure out <laughs> who's kind of the controller. And who is, I don't know, sometimes we have this tendency to be like, okay, I have a stronger personality. I'm going to tell her what to do. I'm going to not tell her what to do. And I think this passage for me, the biggest takeaway here is that humility. I think in First Peter 4 that we did last week is when it kind of talks about love covering a multitude of sins and just love being the most important thing. And it's just showing me that you know, in every relationship, instead of sizing people up to kind of say, okay, well, I could control who I can't. I mean, whether we say that openly or, or we kind of feel a certain way um, because of personality differences, the point here is that humility is going to, humility that stems from love is going to cover everything. And it's the way to go when it comes to relationships in general. That's right. That's, very, that's exactly right. Thank you, Candace. Go ahead, Winston. Just um, briefly, probably pretty obvious. Um, it's just that um, um, an elder doesn't just wake up, you know, when they're perhaps, you know, 55 or 60 and just be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be elder. Um, that's something that starts perhaps when they're, you know, maybe one of the first decisions is, you know, first of all, them choosing the, to, to turn to Christ. But also, you know, one of the qualifications for elders is that their children are believers. So they're home. So, you know, you know, the type of person they choose to be, but then also the type of person that they choose to marry, who's going to be a good partner in, um, in helping that home be a, a place that's going to be helpful for children to be raised up in the Lord. And that entire process of maybe, you know, those you know, 12, 15, and 18 years of raising up their children so that they, that they um, learn to love God through the example of their parents 
Um, that's a, a long term, you know, goal, long term study. We can also right now, um, if we ever hope to be able to either, you know, serve in that role or being or be, you know, be a, a parent who's going to help that come to fruition. Yeah, amen. Amen. Daniel, did you have something? Sorry, you're muted there. Daniel, sorry, you're on mute, brother. Sorry, I have two questions. Uh, first of all, the church um, elects the elder, correct? Yeah, so... Um, or puts them up for vote, vote or something? In 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, and sorry, in 1 Timothy and also in Titus, um, it was the role of, the, of Titus and Timothy to appoint elders. In the, in the book of Acts, it was often the apostles who, uh, who, appointed, um, who, who appointed elders after they planted churches. Um, but I would say that certainly the church plays an important role in that. And oftentimes you, you can go and talk, interview the church and figure out who are the people who are doing the shepherding work just by talking to the members within the group. Does the elders' uh, children have to be married as well? Uh, there's no or just believers. Yeah, there's nothing followers. in the uh, qualification of elders that speaks about whether their children are married or not. So. Okay, thanks. Good questions. So, um, Candace brought this up a moment ago. Uh, that really underneath of all this is is the quality of humility. I think we kind of take for granted that humility is like this really valuable, important virtue. And it's really important for you to think back to like when Jesus first comes on the scene and starts preaching humility. At that time, hum humility was not one of like the worldwide known virtues. This idea of servant leadership was not like, it, it, it's not like something that has always been around um, in our culture. Uh, and it's, not, it, you know, it's kind of a, a mantra you'll hear even worldly people talk about today. Well, you need to have this idea of servant leadership. But actually, it hasn't always been that way. And, and really, that didn't become a thing until Jesus came on the scene. Um, but notice in, uh, in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7, um, Peter connects here humility and also anxiety and then he connects here humility and hope. And, and I wanted to think, I want you to think about here a little bit, like what's the connection between these things? What's the connection between humility and hope? What's the connection between humility and anxiety? Why is Peter giving so much emphasis to humility, both to young people, to all people? Everybody uh, is called to clothe yourselves with humility. Uh, why such an emphasis here on humility in these verses? Yeah, Mike and Candace, go ahead. So the first thought I had just from uh, verse 6 and 7 is that if we don't develop a spirit of humility, we're not going to humble ourselves to God. So we're not going to cast our cares on him. Um, you know, we're not going to do what he says if we don't have, like, just a humble spirit towards him as, as well. That was, that was just my first fleeting to that, I guess. <laughs> 
Good. I think that's right. Nelson? Nelson, I'm sorry, brother. We can't hear you. I think somebody made it. Can you hear me now? Yeah, but barely. Yeah, I think somebody mentioned earlier that being a pastor or shepherd, it's a it's a sign of being like humble, not actually boss or bossing over people. And so it looks like uh, taking a look uh, back to Jesus working himself and who he is, uh, being humble. And so when you become a, like a servant, it's kind of like you lower yourself in a position of serving to the point of you like, not getting pretty much glory for that, but I um, actually bringing glory to God by serving other people. And so I think to be able to do that, you have to be humble. And humility is going to play like a big role when it comes to that. Um, I think the only way that we can be able to serve, as a, whether it's a shepherd, whether it's a regular disciple, or whatever it is, um, has to do with humility. Good. So ultimately, it's it, the leaders have to be humble, but also all the members have to be humble because ultimately what God is doing in the family is he's providing a training ground for us to learn how to be submissive to him. Uh, that is why I think he says, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. We've already seen many different areas where Peter has called us to be subject but really, the, the key to learning to be subject is having a heart of humility. That's why he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Ultimately, learning humility is, is not only going to preserve our relationships with each other, but it's what's going to grow up our relationship with God. After all, God opposes the proud. God resists the proud. God fights against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so ultimately... We humble ourselves before God in hope that God will eventually exalt us with his mighty hand. That is to say, um, humility or meekness is not weakness. It's not the idea of just giving up and saying, I'm going to let people, you know, trample all over me forever. Rather, it's a, it's a strength that it's a true strength where instead of shouting or bullying, um, we through humble, hard work, um, develop a strong bond with our brethren um, and with our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, submitting to him. Of course, that's not going to be an easy thing, and that's why this is a really challenging task for shepherds, and it's a really, really challenging task for uh, all the sheep who are going to be submitting to them. Uh, and I think that's in part why um, Peter says, ends this exhortation to say, hey, by saying, hey, take all your cares and all your anxieties and throw them on God. Uh, maybe you haven't thought about this before, but there's a connection between pride and anxiety. And there's a connection between humility and, uh, and peace and trust. Learning to take our anxieties to God and say, yeah, this may be challenging, this may be difficult, but ultimately the Lord is in control and he's going to provide and he's going to protect and I'm going to trust him by uh, throwing all my anxieties at his feet. So I want you to think about today, what are some anxieties that, that you have? What are some anxieties that I have? 
that I need to be taking directly to God um, and casting completely on the Lord right now as an exercise in humility and an exercise in hope. One of the ways of exercising that humility is by trusting in God um, and ultimately um, and, and casting my cares on him, taking my anxieties to him. All right, what else do you guys want to say? Anything else you guys want to add from the first seven verses here of 1 Peter chapter 5? Anything else you guys want to say about that? Mike and Candace, go ahead. I have this random question, right? Because I didn't grow up hearing this term, and I guess it's a modern term for me. I mean, what is this? What does servant leadership really mean? Because everybody who I've heard refer to themselves as a servant leader. I saw probably to a certain extent more of the leader than the servant. I don't know. What, what, what is that terminology and what exactly should a servant leader look like? I don't know if that question makes sense. It's just that yeah. that's a new term for me that I, I only got accustomed to maybe in the past like five to 10 years, but yeah. Well, I think that's because our society is obsessed with leadership and not so much with service. But in order to make it seem like more noble, we, we use the term service in front of it. I'll just point out that Jesus contrasts leadership with service rather than, say, rather than using the phrase servant leader. I don't have a problem with the phrase servant leader as long as we understand what, as long as we're using that in the way that, in, in the way that Jesus spoke about leadership. And basically what Jesus says when he speaks about leadership is he says, hey, you're not going to be like the nations. You're not going to be exercising authority. Or you could say exercising domineering leadership over other people. Rather, instead, if you want to be great, if you want to, um, if you want to lead, you're going to do that through service. Um, and again, Mark 10, 42 through 45, I think would be the, the text I would use to, to, to prove that. Um, I think there are good reasons maybe for having reservations about even using that term altogether, um, uh, Candace. So I wouldn't insist on the need for using the phrase servant leadership. Um, but if we're going to use that term, we need to be placing the emphasis where Jesus did on the service part, not on the exercising authority or what we might think of as the leadership part of that. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a good question you asked there, Candace. Feel free to jump back in if you have another thought on that too. No, it does. Thank you so much, Gaelic. Yeah, good, good. All right, any other thoughts before we look at uh, the, the last half here of First uh, Peter chapter 5? Yeah, well, I just have a quick thought. Um, sure. similar, to what, similar to what Candace said at the beginning about anxiety and um, humility and pride, it's kind of a flip of it. It's um, if, you, if you are anxious and you're having a hard time, you know, with your anxiety, it might be because, um, it might be because, um, you have uh, a pride in the sense that you you are trying to take care of your anxieties on your own. Uh, you think that you should be able to handle things or or control a situation, and then when it's not, you're anxious or kind of angry, and uh, that's where the humility comes in to bring that anxiety to the Lord and admitting actually any anxiety, really, not just that uh, any anxiety to the Lord, and realizing that you can't ultimately you are not the one who can change the situation or create. Um, or lower, reduce your anxiety. That that is from the Lord, and when you give up, give up that pride, that that uh, insistence that you can do it. Uh, that's when your anxiety subsides. When you can let the Lord take care of it. Amen. Amen. 
All right, good thoughts. Let's take a look at the, the end of the letter here. Um, I want to start reading in verse 8. We're going to read down through verse 14. <clears throat> be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, the faithful brothers, I regard him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is, in Bab who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. All right, I want you to think about here, um, if you can just kind of look back with me for uh, a moment on the letter as a whole, and if you're reading this letter for the first time, before you get to verse 8, if somebody was to ask you now, uh, who are the enemy, who's the enemy of God or who are the enemies of God? Just from reading 1 Peter, uh, what would you say? What are we, if somebody's asking you, you know, what are we fighting against as Christians? Uh, what are we warring against? What would you say just from the letter up until this point? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what your perception would be, but I think that uh, one of the things that I would think if I just read up until this point um, is I would think about all of the people who are persecuting uh, these saints. Those are the ones who are the enemies we're fighting against. Those are the ones who, uh, you know, the people that are making it hard on Christians. Think about those masters who are unreasonable to their servants. Think about, uh, uh, the husbands who are unreasonable to their wives. Um, think about, uh, you know, all the, all the people who are um, hurting their friends and mocking them and reviling them for, uh, for not living uh, like them anymore. Those are the people who are the enemies of God. Um, or even think about first Peter chapter two, we're waging war against our own fleshly desires. We're fighting against ourselves, our own fleshly desires sometimes. Um, but everything changes in chapter five and verse eight, where Peter reminds them that there's a, an enemy beneath all other enemies. Uh, there's actually a war beneath the war. Um, and that war is, uh, is with the devil. Let me ask you this. Um, how does Peter's view of the devil um, match up with uh, common views, maybe your personal past views of the devil um, or other views that you've heard of the way people think about the devil? Um, what do you see in verse 8 uh, and in these verses that we just read? And how does that match up with uh, maybe common ideas that people have today about uh, who the devil is or what he's like and what he's up to um, in the world around us? Um, is anyone trying to help? Yeah, go ahead, Evans. Um, I was gonna say that they um, people people say that the devil is trying to cause you to sin and stuff, and we can see that when it says 
the words like prowls or seeks. So it's trying to make us sin. Yeah. Good. So, uh, so that part is, is absolutely right. People, people who talk about the devil trying to get us to sin. Peter seems to confirm that here in these verses that he's on the prowl. Uh, Mike and Candace, go ahead. Yeah, Caleb. I remember when I was a kid, I would watch cartoons every now and then. And yeah. one thing that would always happen is one character would have a devil on one side of him in a thought bubble and an angel on the other side trying to convince this character of what to do. Right, right. Your question just reminded me of that. Yeah. Um, as far as this scripture is concerned, um, as far as my personal life goes, as far as what the devil can do, I'm thinking of verse 9 in particular where it says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, one strategy that the devil uses is to make us think that we're alone in whatever it is that we're going through at a particular moment. And it's interesting how verse 9 conflates resistance to the devil with knowing that other people in the brotherhood are going through the same suffering that you are. Right. Um, so yeah, that's my, in my life, I've been through things and just the reassurance that other folks are going through the same thing that kind of defeats one of the devil's most prevalent strategies. I like the resist him because I think sometimes in the midst of um, suffering and sin, it's like you feel like the devil sometimes I feel like maybe we feel like we can't like God has to do it like you know we can't resist him I don't know and I just like the fact that he tells us to resist him so it means that we do have um, some power by, but by the power of God but we do have some power to resist him and it's not like oh well we have no power at all or we have no control over him I guess I don't know if that makes sense but. absolutely and that's critical uh, think about it. That's critical. We believe in the resurrection. We believe that we have resurrection power from God, but yet sometimes when it comes to temptation, we're like, I don't have the power to overcome this. What is wrong with us? A God who can raise the dead can make the impossible possible. And so the resurrection changes what we believe is plausible or what we believe is possible. Uh, and it ought to move us to, uh, to trust God enough to say, you know what? God's given me all the power that I need to resist the devil. Yeah, I may not have the power. I may be inadequate, but he is more than adequate uh, to fight against the devil today. Go ahead, Ruth. Yeah, my, I was just, it's just to add to it, my, um, my thought. I know that that verse is somewhere in Psalms too, but the way that verse reminds me of like in Genesis, but it's talking about sin, crouching like a lion. So the way that it rewords it saying like, of course, we know that in Christ, sin no longer has dominion over us. So we do have that freedom. So even like the wording of it changes. Right. So it just shows you like we, we do have that power to overcome. That's right. That's right. Brian. Um, I agree definitely that I think sometimes in the world when you see the devil in a, a literature or, or stories or, or a movie, it's like the devil just has all power. It's like once the devil shows up, everyone's you know, powerless or something, which obviously we know isn't true. But the other thing, um, the thing I was thinking of was, uh, you say like the way the world portrays the devil, I think in real life and in, in, in movies and literature is that, you know, we have this idea that, you know, the devil only affects the people who like conjure him up, you know, like Satan, satanic worshipers and people who 
you know, you hear about musicians who make a deal with the devil so they can, right. truce, you know, supposedly these myths of where they, to, so they could be, you know, rock stars or stars with their guitar and they come back and they all of a sudden they know how to play. And uh, so it's this idea that it's something so alien to the people of the world. Like they're like the devil, like I have nothing to do with the devil, you know, that's for like people who go to, you know, witchcraft stores and, um, you know, that it's like people who are seeking him out and you make, you have to draw this star and sit down and do a, you have to conjure him. And that's not it at all. You know, the devil's right there in your neighbor when he's asking you to, you know, if you want a cigarette or something. Um, I mean, that's, that's kind of simplistic, but, um, but it, you know, goes from there. It's like, you know, you have a, uh, you fall into temptation, you know, out of weakness and usually it's, it's actually unexpected and you might not even realize you're in it and then you're in it and it's up to your strength, whether you can get out. And, uh, you know, that the, the most innocent, nicest, quote unquote, person in the world who's, who, who isn't a believer might think that the devil's a silly idea, but uh, it's, he's not. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about this in his little book, The Screwtape Letters, um, and, which is from uh, this fictional story of a senior devil to a junior one on how to tempt people. Um, and he talks about how some people dismiss the idea of the devil thinking um, of some little person with hooves and horns, um, wearing red tights. I don't know if any of you guys uh, growing up before you became Christians dressed up like devils for Halloween, um, you know. But, uh, and, and because people can't believe in a creature like that, um, and rightly so, they decide they can't believe in the devil at all. Um, other people become so fascinated with the devil that, that really they can't think of anything but the devil. Everything is the devil, um, you know, and the devil is, is, is behind every corner. Um, and hiding in every bush, you know, um, there's, there's obviously, um, we have a, we can have a tendency to either over underestimate the devil or underestimate the devil. And I think Peter, at least when he's writing this to these Christians, he's more concerned about the latter, that we would underestimate the impact the devil might have around us. I like the point you made, Brian, about conjuring up the devil, because if you think of the devil as a lion, you know, you don't have to conjure up a lion to get devoured by it. You know, if you're around a lion and you're not paying close attention, you can get killed. When I was in Zimbabwe, um, we took a little safari one day on our day off and uh, went over and we came across a couple of lions that were eating like a baby elephant. And after seeing some elephants on the trip, I was like, how on earth does a lion um, take down a baby elephant with a whole herd of huge elephants around. And this is what they said. They said, you know, when, when a baby's first born, say it's right next to her mother. But you know how this goes. As, as kids get a little bit older, they start to think they can venture off. And that's what happens with the, the, the baby elephants. They start to venture off a little further away from their mother. And the lion just waits until the, the, the elephant's not paying attention. And the herd is far enough away and then strikes. And you can think about the, the significance of that. You know, um, the devil is not a cheetah. He's not, just, he's not just super fast and he just chases you down and there's nothing you can do to resist him. The way he hunts is like a lion. He waits until you're least expecting it, until you're really tired or until you're um, really compromised by whatever hard things you're going through. And then at the moment you least expect it, that's when he strikes. Um, and so that's why Peter says in order to prepare for him, it's going to take a couple of things, a sober mind, being clear minded, being watchful um, and, and being careful. Uh, that's why Peter spends so much time talking about soberness in this letter. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah. Amen. 
Um, I was just going to add that on the verse eight, um, a lot of my professional work, I work with people who are addicted to alcohol and substance abuse. And verse eight stands out strongly because um, the devil, you know, there's no, no greater way to also want to influence somebody, have them when they're not in their right mind. Yeah. So people who are addicted to alcohol, please, that's why we stress so much to stay away from being from your addictions and get the help you need because uh, alcohol or drugs um, take you out of your normal state of mind. That's right. and, and, and you're much more susceptible to the devil's influences or for any negative oppressive influences, uh, predators around you, you talk about the line, because, because you're not in your normal state of mind that Amen. you can make a good decision and you're mm-hmm. so susceptible to, um, you're so susceptible to, it's a, it's a, um, from finding your correct path to God, the path you should be on. If I can keep you drugged up or, or drunk, you'll never get that path. You'll never find mm-hmm. your way. That's right. That's how he mm-hmm. wants you to be, off balance and lost. So, mm-hmm. so please fight those things. Amen. That's right. Amen. And some of us have never taken a sip of alcohol, and yet we live drunk all day long because we're not filled with the Spirit and we're not prayerful. Um, there's more ways to get drunk than just... Uh, Amen. Amen. And uh, so I think your point there is really, really helpful, Rich. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Nelson or uh, Winston, somebody in the room over there, go ahead. Yeah, just following on what you and Rich were mentioning, um, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse uh, 13, he uses this, uh, this uh, phrase, be sober-minded again. And, and I totally agree with what Richard was saying, also what you were saying, what Richard's saying, like, yeah, those things that can make us intoxicated can be substances like drugs and alcohol. Um, and that's totally true. I think that's one of them as well. But Peter also points out that another way we can be intoxicated is when we place our hope in something different than the gospel. I can be intoxicated when I, instead of holding on to the living hope that God is seeking to offer me, I'm hoping in something else, whether that be money. And I'm so obsessed with that, that I'm doing all these crazy things to try to get it, whether that be women, whether that be, you know, status or power, whatever hope that I'm, that I'm, you know, that I'm holding on to, that's not the gospel. That's going to make me like I'm drunk. And the devil's going to use that to, 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 to attack me. That's right. And some of us have the scars to testify to that um, as well. Thanks for sharing. Uh, Joy and then Ruth. I didn't know. Um, I was just thinking of, um, of being sober-minded. And um, as the brother talked about the things that can get our minds clouded, I was looking at... Um, uh, verses one, two, three, where Peter was saying to take care of the flock which God um, entrusted to them and to serve by um, example and not to lord it over the Lord's church because power can become another addiction and we can become so clouded in, in our struggle for power that we start lording it over the Lord's church instead of leading by example. And I think that's why we need to be sober-minded because, you know, any little thing can trip us off. And I was thinking of Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul was encouraging us to um, 
put on the whole armor of God because we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Because sometimes we look at the people around us and we think they are the enemy. And we fail to see the real enemy, who is Satan, who is the devil. Who, and he's, he's going to trip us up if we are not being sober-minded. If we do not humble ourselves and really look to God and try to just please him in, in obeying him, you know. And so we become vulnerable to, to the wiles of the devil. That's right. Those are great words of wisdom. Thank you for sharing that, Sister Joy. Go ahead, Ruth. Yeah, um, I was kind of thinking of, of the whole um, be on a watch. I think sometimes we also can have pride thinking that even in our Christian bubble, we won't, we'd be immune to experience um, suffering in a way that will, um, let, like Winston, um, what's his, I'm sorry, his name, I'm so sorry. Winston, yeah. Winston um, said about like our security, like what do we hope in in things other than the gospel? I mean, watching like even an experience in 2020 when so many things kind of like exposed our idols and caused us to face some of the, our, our securities, um, insecure, like the things that we have to find securities in. Um, it's also could be things like um, what can cause us to lose our bearings things like where we're shocked about experiencing suffering in a way that we didn't think um, because we're serving Christ that, that we aren't supposed to endure this level of suffering, like or be, being shocked. Um, I think when Peter even says like, hey, like you're, there's other brothers um, that are suffering uh, throughout the world with things. And that, so we're not, just because we're Christians, um, doesn't mean that we are immune from the the brokenness of this world and that um, just like also too not saying that we don't have pride we always tend to kind of look at other people who lives live a sinful life or really look at oh somebody's drinking or somebody has a sexual habit like yeah so we think we don't need to be as watchful as we ought to be and we actually should because it's various sufferings and we're not immune here we're going to endure this until um, at all these different types of surfaces until he comes again. That's right. That's right. And the trials that the devil may be tempting me with and trying to devour me with may not be the exact same trials or it may not manifest in the same way um, as uh, the trials that my brother or sister next to me may be, may, uh, may be wrestling with either. But they are the same kinds of suffering. Um, that are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. All right, we're coming to, uh, to Nelson's house, but real quick, I want to raise this question and you guys can uh, not, you can talk about whatever you want, but I want to raise the question for you guys to think about why is it so important for us to think about brethren across the world who are suffering? Um, why does he bring that up? Why was that so important for Peter that they think about brethren who are suffering throughout the world. Um, and as you think about that, I also want you to be asking yourself this question and reflecting on this question. What persecutions and sufferings among brethren am I aware of? And if I'm not aware of any, uh, what can I do this week to become more aware of them? And maybe some of you who are uh, aware of uh, brethren suffering across the world and, and persecuted across the world could give some advice on that on how to, how to make sure we are aware of those things. So why is that so important and, and how do we stay aware of them? Go ahead, um, whoever would like to speak over there in Nelson's house, go ahead. 
I'll pass for the moment. Okay, sure. All right, so why is this so important? You need to think about the fact that there are people all over the world in the brotherhood sharing in your sufferings. And by the way, we're going to try to uh, go about 13 more minutes and finish here at 6.15 today. If anybody needs to drop off, feel free to do so. But uh, why is it so important for us to know about uh, our brethren who are suffering across the world? Um, I guess there were two things that I thought of immediately here. Just because um, I'm thinking the band of a community, just the fact that, okay, you're suffering, I'm suffering, we're suffering, let's figure out how we're going to help each other. Let's go, let's figure out how we're going to love each other and show each other, just show each other love through the suffering. And, and like Michael, I think Michael kind of alluded to this earlier, this idea that, okay, if you're, if you're resisting the devil, you're doing it with the power of God. I can do it too. Like I said, this idea of community, that's kind of what I was thinking. Community and love. Yeah. Good. Brian. Yeah, I think someone mentioned it earlier. Um, the idea that uh, the devil wants us to think we're alone. Um, you know, if we're suffering, um, it can be either, you know, the devil wanting us to be alone and also, you know, a little bit of us wanting to feel bad for ourselves and say, wow, this is just so hard, or this is, or you could be crying, this is so terrible, it could be something very real, very sad. Um, and you're gonna turn to something sinful or turn away from God um, and thinking it's so difficult, but this verse is literally, literally says, stand firm because, you know, you're, it just says, because other, your other brothers are suffering as well. So if you're sitting there suffering, it really helps you know, I felt that it, re it really helps to know there are people who are also experiencing literally, you know, the same suffering. And you know it because he's saying it here in the Bible. It's not something you have to check on. You don't have to, you know, call up uh, Italy or, or uh, you know, China or someone and find, find someone who's going through the same thing as you. Um, you just, you know, you have to have faith that it's true. And it is true. We know that. There are people who have suffering a lot worse, you know, quote unquote, so it really, it can help you because when you know there's someone else, many other people suffering and they might be suffering alone like you and only have the God to talk to in those moments, that's incredibly helpful because you know that God is reaching out to all of us. Yeah, good. I think that's right. And there's a reason why God told Elijah when he was deeply depressed and thought he was the only one left, hey, there's still 8,000 in Israel. Sometimes when we get so overwhelmed with the sufferings we're facing, it's easy to forget, hey, and to think we're, and the devil uses that, hey, you're alone, so really God has abandoned you. What's the point in serving him? You need to give up. But if we can remember, no, actually, I may feel like I'm alone. I may not see anybody else suffering around me, but actually there's brothers and sisters who are suffering all over the world. It gives me strength to persevere. Um, Melissa Jones, did you have a thought or a question? Yeah, it made me think of uh, how we are one body, so even if someone's a, like a brother, sisters all the way across the country or um, somewhere across the world, if they're suffering, then it's, it, it affects the other parts of the body one way or the other. And at the same time, if, like, if, they're, like, if they're doing really well, that's also great to know too, so that we can celebrate together, rejoice together, and be encouraged by one another. Kind of like how... Uh, Candace was saying, um, 
like how it's how it's good to know so that we can help each other. It's also good to know so that we can, like it's, it's good to know that other people are suffering the same things we are so that we're encouraged that we can endure as well. Um, we can also be encouraged when they're doing when they're doing well. So we can say, oh, I can do that too. That's right. Amen. Uh, Ruth, go ahead. Ruth, are you there? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Um, it's something that I'm just to add to what everybody is saying, but also something that um, Ben spoke to about earlier um, in the sermon. Well, of course, like in the context of like First Peter, these are Christians who are, you know, suffering through persecution and they're scattered around. So it's like their whole experience is just shift. And I've, I, the, the idea of this new normal is scary. So even like with 2020 for us, um, a lot of our fellowships have to, you know, though we can't, we can't really fellowship the way we want to. Um, and so it's kind of like, it kind of feels like that at times. And so I think even when um, Ben was encouraging us, like, hey, sometimes we can have the tendency when, I, when it comes to isolation, which I think is a breeding ground for Satan to even try to kind of rob us of our joy. And so we got to fight against those things and fight against the division that is kind of kind of forced that we have right now and try to do better in the idea of like, we're not alone in our suffering. We, um, we need to be reaching out. We need to kind of acknowledge that everybody, we may not even know what people are going through, but we, we, it's just this assumption that people maybe going through stuff and that we need to um, make more efforts into loving one another better. Amen. Amen. Um, I think Antonio, did you have something? Oh, yes, Caleb. Uh, I think, uh, you know, suffering, everybody suffers, but the pain we experience is different from one another. So, and then, and then the only way we can help our brothers is if we experience the same pain. And I do believe that's why God sent his only, his only son, Jesus Christ, in order to experience what we went through. In that way, we're going to be able uh, to, you know, to help one another if we experience the same pain. Yeah. I think all those are good points and really important. I, I want to encourage you, if, you, if you're not aware of brethren who are suffering, persecuted, going through hardships across the, uh, across the world today. Uh, do some research, put some work into that, reach out uh, if you need advice on how to go about doing that or how to connect with brethren like that. Uh, reach out to one of us and, uh, and let's, let, let's keep that in mind. Um, it's so important for us to see the bigger picture here of what's going on um, and not just get stuck in the bubble, the, the small little bubble that we're in or the moment that we're in. I think that's also why Peter says in verse 10, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace will confirm, restore, strengthen, and establish you. I love the verses that, that he ends on here. It is interesting to me that, um, that Peter ends by saying, hey, uh, I've been testifying to you 
that this is the true grace of God. And I just want to ask you, as you reflect back over um, 1 Peter, what is this? What is this letter taught us about God's grace? Um, what is this letter taught us about what the true grace of God looks like? I don't know. Maybe when you're reading this, you're thinking, "Hey, this doesn't sound much like grace at all. It sounds like a letter full of suffering." Um, how can Peter write a letter all about suffering and speak about all these different kinds of, of suffering? And, and so much of this letter has been about suffering, and yet. Uh, Peter comes to the end of it and he says, hey, I've written to you about the true grace of God. Um, so uh, with our last question here, I just want you to think about what what has this letter taught you about God's grace? What has your letter taught you about uh, what the true grace of God really is and what it does um, and how it helps us? Uh, Winston, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Get out of here, Winston. <laughs> Um, I think, um, what's interesting, I think, uh, if there is a tr true grace of God, maybe there's some people who are peddling, you know, this false grace of God. And if I were to try to understand more about what Peter means when he says true grace, maybe I can think about what would be the opposite of what he's been talking about. What Peter's been talking about is like, hey, look, look you have this living hope, this imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven, stored by God who is strong and powerful and you can count on it and so the false it, even though you and you can hold on to that hope even though you face these trials and these sufferings and so perhaps maybe like a false grace is like look if you're going to be a christian you're not going to face any suffering you're you're going to have this you know nice life you're going to have everything you want you know jesus is going to give you all all your desires you're basically going to uh, have heaven on earth and I think we learned that's like the opposite of what Peter's been talking about. He's been talking about like, even if you do face suffering, this amazing promise that God has given you is so valuable. It outweighs that, um, that, that hardship. Amen. Good. Other thoughts on what Peter has, Peter's letter have, has taught us about God's grace and about the true grace of God here. Uh, I like the idea when Peter says that the suffering is only uh, temporary. Right. We, could, we also have to watch out and be alert. At any time, we can be uh, devoured by, by lion. So we got to be vigilant. That's right. But it is temporary. It's just for a little while. If I can endure it for a little while, there's this future grace that is ahead of me. That's not just temporary. It's not just for a little while. It endures forever. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, I think similar to what, uh, actually a little bit of what Winston and uh, Antonio both said is that it might not be anyone necessarily preaching us, preaching to us that there shouldn't be any suffering, but that definitely happens too. But we might just have this understanding that, you know, God is great. And I, you know, once I become Christian, I should, you know, I should not be suffering because it's this good thing. I'm giving myself over to the Lord. I'm giving up. I'm giving up things in life, you know, so it's, I should be kind of rewarded, you know, in an innocent way. So it might be, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, it's, I think it's Peter's way and Paul's way sometimes to kind of almost gently tell us, well, you know, do all these things. And yeah, you are going to suffer a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and God's grace is this gift that we're only going to suffer a little bit. And then if we withstand that, there is this reward. Whereas if we don't withstand that, if we, 
go in the other direction, it's a, it's going to be a lot worse. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, you can't even describe the difference, how it's going to be terrible. It's going to feel like maybe, oh, God doesn't want me to suffer this much. And then we turn, but then we suffer something so much worse for longer than if we would just withstand and, and allow God to uh, put his grace to us and get us through that. Yeah, I think that's right. And just think about, again, think about what Peter's been saying throughout this letter. To this group of saints who are scattered across ancient Asia, um, and they're small groups. You know, they're aliens. They're, they're strangers. People look at them, and they think they're weird, and they revile them, and they don't understand them, and they don't welcome them. They're, they feel very unwelcome. And think about, if you're one of those believers, if you're one of those saints in ancient Asia going through all this, you, I think any natural feeling would be to, to increasingly, as you're suffering and as you're going through these hardships, to increasingly be concerned that the persecution and the hardships that you're facing meant that maybe I'm on the wrong road. Like if I was on the right road, it wouldn't be this hard. I wouldn't be going through this. This life wouldn't be so difficult for me. Maybe God has abandoned me. And so I love uh, Denise's summary there in the comments. Um, much of what Peter's doing here is he's saying, hey, the true grace of God is it's not that you're on the wrong road if you suffer. The true grace of God is you will suffer, and yet God is going to be with you in your suffering. He's going to be with you as you walk along this road of suffering, and you need to know that this suffering is temporary, but that future grace on which you have set your hope is eternal. It will never come to an end. And I love how Peter ends this by saying simply that you, after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. When we're going through hardships and we're going through trials, when we're looking around and we feel like aliens and everybody else around us thinks we're strange and, every, and many, of, many of our neighbors and friends don't welcome us, they don't want anything to do with us. We need to remember that God has called us to eternal glory and that the calling that he's called us to is a life full of suffering in this world. It's a life of sacrifice, a life of suffering, a life of subjection, a life full of hardship. But ultimately, God has called us to eternal glory. And in the end, he himself, Christ himself, we don't have to restore ourselves. We don't have to confirm ourselves. We don't have to strengthen ourselves. We don't have to establish ourselves. He himself will restore us, will confirm us, will strengthen and establish us. This is our hope in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this is the true grace of God. What a blessing to be able to read letters like this. And now the hard work begins of standing firm in it. So may God help us to do just that. Thank you guys so much for all your comments. Thanks for your questions. Appreciate our discussion. It's been a wonderful time uh, wrestling with the word of God together. And I hope it's benefited you as it has me. Uh, let's finish with the word of prayer. And then if anybody has any further thoughts, comments, feel free to stay on and we can discuss more. Oh God, our Father, thank you so much for this letter, which reminds us of the true grace that you have poured out. Lord, we've gone through trials this year. Uh, various trials. People on this call, Lord, have faced a lot of different kinds of trials and temptations this year. Um, but Lord, we're comforted by knowing that the trials that we're facing, our brethren are facing all over the world. Um, you haven't given us any trial that is beyond what we are able to resist. 
but with every trial, you have shown us a way of escape, and you are faithful to us in them. And I thank you, God, that you haven't asked us to walk this road of suffering alone. You have been with us every step of the way. And I pray, oh God, that our faith in you would grow, that we would entrust ourselves to you, that we would follow in the footsteps of our Savior, that we would share in the fellowship of your sufferings, that we would be faithful to you and stand firm in your grace. Until one day, the Lord returns, and the one on whom we've set our hope will bring us home to that eternal glory with you. Thank you, Father, for these words. May they be written on our hearts. May we not be forgetful hearers, but effective doers. In Jesus we pray. Amen. The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.